0: In our time together i want to take the opportunity to answer some of the questions that have been submitted to me in written form throughout the years let's launch straight into that pastor john when the second person of the trinity identified as the word in john chapter 1 verse 1 when he became flesh john chapter 1 verse 14 did this signify a change in the godhead in some way i've heard more than one preacher say that in becoming man He laid aside his divine attributes, his characteristics, such as omnipresence, being everywhere present, and omniscience, knowing all things. Is this true? Here's my response. Well, thank you for writing in. The answer is a resounding no to both of your questions. The Godhead has not changed one iota and never will. God is both eternal and immutable. means unchanging scripture says this malachi chapter 3 verse 6 i am the lord i change not i do not change i would say that christ in no way laid aside his divine attributes at any time though by becoming a man those attributes were veiled to us it's important to know these kind of questions are not new to our generation But Christian scholars throughout the centuries have grappled with these concepts and found biblical answers. To to combat the gross heresy that was seeking to gain inroads in the church, Christian leaders met together at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD to search the Bible and properly define what we call the hypostatic union, hypostatic union, which refers to the union of the two natures of Christ here at this council based on the revelation of Scripture Jesus Christ was declared to be one person with two natures one that is truly human and one that is truly divine these two natures are united in one person these natures can be distinguished from each other but never separated how exactly this union of the two natures takes place is very much a mystery but it's certainly the case colossians 2 verse 9 tells us that christ is the fullness of deity in bodily form in christ dwells all the fullness of the godhead bodily the statement of the council was found in these words we then following the holy fathers all with one consent Teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable, that's rational, soul and body, consubstantial, coessential, with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably indivisibly inseparably the distinction of nature's being by no means taken away by the Union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence not parted or divided into two persons but one and the same son and only begotten God the Word the Lord Jesus Christ as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us and the Creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us end of quote well that's lengthy it's very technical it's theological language for sure let me try and break this down a little part of it anyway to say this, the human nature of Jesus is not half human and half divine, but truly, fully human. Likewise, the divine nature of Christ is not half divine and half human, but fully divine, truly divine. The human nature has the attributes of humanness. The divine nature has all the attributes of deity. John Calvin, in addressing this, once wrote, Although the Word in His immeasurable essence united with the nature of man into one person, we do not imagine that He was confined therein. Here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, He willed to be home in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth and to hang upon the cross, yet He continuously filled the world Even as he had done from the beginning you'll find that in his institutes 2 and then 13 4. knowing this helps us enormously as we read the new testament often we see statements that could only be true of the human nature of christ we read that he increased in wisdom he was hungry he was tired and so on we're even told that he did not know the date of his second coming and only his father did here we have a statement that would not be true of him as to his deity, for as God he knew all things. And therefore it's a reference to his humanity, where the attribute of deity, in this case omniscience, did not communicate that knowledge to his human nature. Jesus was omniscient with respect to his divine nature, but temporal and changeable with respect to his human nature. Another evidence of the humanity of Jesus is the fact that he died. Preachers often mistakenly say that God died on the cross, and some hymns even say this. I'm sure we've all heard the hymn that declares amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? But were that to happen in reality, the whole universe would be destroyed. That's because as God, all things are held together in him. The universe would not exist for even a split second if God died. No, it is totally impossible for God to die. Jesus died pertaining to his humanity, not his deity. This is all extremely mysterious, of course, but what the Council of Chalcedon did not remove was the mystery. However, it did show us the boundaries regarding orthodoxy as to what is orthodoxy and what is heresy what is true according to the scripture and within the bounds of christian thought and belief and doctrine and that which is heresy and when we seek to go beyond chalcedon's declarations to use the expression of one scholar we simply choose our heresy in that sense chalcedon was a terminal council in the sense that it would be extremely hard, if not impossible, to state how the two natures function in Christ's one person with any more precision than the Council has stated. It's terminal in the sense that that's as far as we can go. What adds to the mystery is that we're not aware of anything in this earthly realm that is fully one thing, while at the same time fully something else. That's why all earthly analogies fail. I did recently read one attempt, though, that probably gets as close as possible to being a good analogy, but even here it's flawed. James Anderson of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, wrote this. An analogy, albeit an imperfect one, may help to clarify this distinction. In the movie Avatar, the protagonist Jake Sully is enlisted to operate a Na'vi human hybrid body given the close mental connection between Sully and his avatar he acts and experiences everything through that body we might well say that he inhabits the hybrid body and that he now has two bodies so consider this question can Sully run well yes and no he can't run with respect to human body he's a paraplegic but he can run with respect to his avatar body similarly we can say that jesus was resurrected with respect to his human nature but not with respect to his divine nature only in his humanity did he undergo change that's the end of quote again it's an analogy and as the author writes it's an imperfect one if we can use our imagination for a moment picture jesus jesus shortly after his birth it would be true to say that humanly speaking he was fragile as he was being held in the arms of his mother yet if we could peer for a moment beyond the physical jesus as god was holding not only his mother but every cell and atom in the universe holding all of it together talking of Christ Colossians 1 16 and 17 says for in him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him he is before all things and in him all things hold together Jesus is the creator of all things and in him all things hold together that's quite a thought quite a thought isn't it the last point i'd like to make in all this is a reference to the roman catholic teaching of the mass where the belief is that the bread becomes the literal body blood and divinity of christ this doctrine has many severe problems with it not the least being that this is a denial Of the chalcedon statement because it would mean that christ's literal body is in more than one place at a time if the mass is celebrated at a church on fourth street in a city it cannot also be on 48th street or fifth avenue at the same time and certainly not also in england australia and china at the same time that human nature is human with its many limitations one of them being that it's always localized in one place again the human nature the attributes of the humanity of christ are human with all of the limitations of humanity what's amazing though is that when christ was walking the streets of jerusalem as to his humanity uh, he's in one place and in his divinity He's everywhere present without any limitations such is the case today the body of jesus is at the right hand of his father on the throne of the universe and yet he's near to us and everywhere present with us in his divinity that's why the reformers believe that in celebrating the lord's supper christ is fully present with us spiritually rather than physically Jesus said and behold I am with you always to the end of the age Matthew 28 verse 20 what a comfort what a comfort this doctrine is he's present with us even now talk to him enjoy sweet fellowship with the master there's a very helpful article out there on the internet by Dr. James White entitled Beyond the Veil of Eternity I recommend it very highly uh, dr white deals especially with philippians 2 the passage there where he states uh, quoting philippians 2 he emptied himself and that is not by losing anything essential to the divine nature but as the text says by taking the form of a servant so you might want to look that article up i, I really believe these doctrines of the faith and doctrine in general is intensely practical and so i i I love to bring application to speak of christ being near to us when we understand the deity of christ here's a related question in fact uh, some of it was uh, mentioned very briefly in what was just said it refers to matthew 24 verse 36 let me uh, quote the question Matthew 24 36 says but concerning that day and hour no one knows not even the angels of heaven nor the son but the father only this seems to be problematic for if there is something the son does not know would this not indicate to us that he's not omniscient all-knowing God is all-knowing and yet this tells us that there's something Christ did not know. Pastor John, how do, you, how do we reconcile this verse with the Christian concept of the deity of Christ? Well, the verse is often raised by those in the cults, Christian cults, who openly deny Christ's deity. However, a very satisfactory biblical answer to the question emerges when we understand and embrace some good theology. Again, I refer to the Council of Chalcedon, 451 AD. There, theologians outline what is referred to as the doctrine of the hypostatic union. This council is one of the great ecumenical councils accepted by Ethan Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and most Protestant Christian churches. It provides a clear statement as to what Orthodox Christians believe concerning the person of Christ, drawn of course from the biblical text translated into English uh, we've, we've, we've read it uh, there's no need to rehearse and recount that again but it speaks of the true humanity and the true deity of Christ without this uh, distortion or any confusion of any kind two natures of Christ let me just pause for a moment. And say this Orthodox Christianity teaches the Trinity where there's one God and three persons Father Son and Holy Spirit God is one in essence three in person when it comes to Christ we have one person with two natures one truly human one truly divine now the the text of the council of chalcedon is intentionally very precise very theological and it's vitally important we get this right heresy awaits all who would veer from this safe biblical position at chalcedon it was affirmed that christ was perfect complete in godhood also perfect complete in manhood truly god and truly man Christ is one person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. The full attributes of deity and the full attributes of humanity were both preserved without mixture or confusion. Christ does not have one nature which is a mixture of divine and human. Let me say that again. Christ does not have one nature which is a mixture of divine and human. No, he's truly God truly man one person with two nature uh, two natures Uh, the the human nature remains human with all the attributes of humanity the divine nature remains divine and possesses and maintains all the attributes of divinity in the incarnation the second person of the Godhead became a man Colossians 2 9 quoted again for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily Regarding his humanity, Jesus learned about the world around him, just as other children would do. Scripture tells us that he grew and became strong, Luke three twenty-three. There were times when he was thirsty, John 19, verse 28. Hungry, Matthew 4, verse 2. Was weary, he was weary, John 4, verse 6. These things show the humanity of Christ rather than his deity, God is never weary, thirsty, or hungry. On the other hand, Jesus was also truly God. And as God, he had infinite knowledge. John 2.25, John 16.30, John 21.17. With regards to the text quoted above, that you quote Matthew 24.36, I believe it's referring to his human nature. This is similar to other statements about Jesus, which could be true of his human nature only, and not of his divine nature. A note in the ESV study Bible concerning this verse reads, how Jesus could have limited knowledge and yet know all things is difficult and much remains a mystery for nobody else has ever been both God and man. One possibility is that Jesus regularly lived on the basis of his human knowledge but could at any time call to mind anything from his infinite knowledge. End of quote. I agree. Though as God he would know all things, including the future date of his second coming, yet that knowledge was in this case withheld from his human nature. Having this biblical concept in place, that Christ is one person with two natures, allows us to see theological error in other areas of doctrine. For instance, it would be incorrect to say that God died on the cross for the simple reason that it's impossible for God to die. The whole universe would cease to be if that were the case. It would a, it would involve a change in God. And one of the attributes of God is immutability. Matthew, excuse me, Malachi 3, verse 6. God does not change. I'm the Lord. I change not. Let me quote Dr. R. C. Sproul here. Uh, from an article appearing on uh, Ligonier.org. The famous hymn of the church, And Can It Be?, contains a line that asks a very poignant question, How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Is it accurate to say that God died on the cross? This kind of expression is popular in hymnody and in grassroots conversation. So although I have this scruple about the hymn and it bothers me that the expression is there, I think I understand it and there's a way to give an indulgence for it. We believe that Jesus Christ was God incarnate. We also believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. If we say that God died on the cross and if by that we mean that the divine nature perished, we have stepped over the edge into heresy serious heresy. In fact, two such heresies related to this problem arose in the early centuries of the church, theopassionism and patripassionism. The first of these, theopassionism, teaches that God himself suffered death on the cross. Patripassionism indicates that the father suffered vicariously through the suffering of his son. Both of these heresies were roundly rejected by the church for the very reason that they categorically deny the very character and nature of God, including his immutability. There's no change in the substantive nature or character of God at any time. God not only created the universe, he sustains it by the very power of his being. As Paul said, in him we live and move and have our being, Acts seventeen twenty-eight. If the being of God ceased for one second the universe would disappear it would pass out of existence because nothing can exist apart from the sustaining power of God if God dies everything dies with him obviously then God could not have perished on the cross some say it was the second person of the Trinity who died that would be a mutation within the very being of God. Because when we look at the Trinity, we say that the three are one in essence and that though there are personal distinctions amongst the persons of the Godhead, those distinctions are not essential in the sense that they are differences in being. Death is something that would involve a change in one's being. We should shrink in horror from the idea that God actually died on the cross. The atonement was made by the human nature of Christ. Somehow people tend to think that this lessens the dignity or the value of the substitutionary act as if we were somehow implicitly denying the deity of Christ. God forbid. It's the God-man who dies. But death is something that is experienced only by the human nature because the divine nature isn't capable of experiencing death. End of quote. Lengthy quote. I believe Dr. Sproul is correct, and understanding this gives the basis upon which we can understand who our Lord Jesus Christ is. Praise the Lord. Here's another question Does unforgiveness negate our justification before God? Here's the question I received, Pastor John. In Matthew six fourteen and 15 Jesus said for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses is it not the plain reading of the text to interpret these words to mean that our forgiveness from God depends on our forgiving others if this is the case is not our ultimate salvation contingent upon our works in some measure do these verses teach that a genuine Christian can lose his salvation because of the sin of unforgiveness here's my answer well thank you for your question it's a very important one obviously we're all prone to read into the text concepts that are not stated by the text the technical term for this is eisegesis in contrast what we need to be engaged in is called exegesis, which is the drawing out of the text what is actually in the text. A failure to do this results in much confusion and, and error. Some have gone to as far as to say that a, there are definitely texts that teach uh what we would call reformed or calvinistic theology but others that teach arminian doctrine and therefore the biblical position is somewhere in the middle between the two the problem with this view is that we're then left with a bible full of glaring contradictions contradiction is not the hallmark of truth but of error and falsehood though there are definite mysteries in the bible i don't believe there are any genuine contradictions here's one example of what i'm a ad- describing i believe the apostle paul in romans eight thirty makes it clear that all truly justified christians will endure to the end and be saved the text reads this way those whom he justified he also glorified the the end of those justified is glorification the justified end up glorified justification being god's declaration that a person is right before him right with himself glorification being the final permanent state of salvation in contradiction to this is the view that a passage such as the one you quote means that justified people if they then refuse to forgive will finally and be permanently damned so which of these concepts is true both concepts cannot possibly be true because one is a total contradiction to the other here as elsewhere, rather than choosing one concept over the other, the good student of God's Word seeks to find a harmony between all that God has revealed. Because the Bible is not contradictory, the harmony is there, we just need to seek to find it. This often requires much prayer, thought, and study. But the Lord has told us elsewhere to do exactly that. Paul instructed Timothy, with these words, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. That's Second Timothy two verse seven. Also, Second Timothy two fifteen. A vital principle of interpretation is that on any given subject we should find the passages that are clear and start our thinking there. Then, after having ascertained what is clear, we should then move to passages which, at first glance, seemingly unclear using the example of Romans 8:30 as i have on the issue of a person declared justified before god it is clear that he or she will end up glorified those whom he justified he also glorified knowing this we then take a closer look at the matthew 6 passage and actually ask this question what does the text actually say does the text actually say that justified people will lose salvation or be unforgiven by God? No, it does not say that at all. It simply says that the one who does not forgive will be unforgiven, will not receive forgiveness. Here's what we know justification is not by faith plus works. Justification is by faith alone, apart from works. Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Justification is not by faith. And then there is something like a probation period between being declared right before God and then the end of the lifetime with the hope that no unforgiveness occurs which would forfeit salvation. To teach that would amount to a complete violation of the biblical gospel and would affirm salvation by works after all it would place the sinner in the very precarious position of being justified but on probation as christians we should believe all that scripture teaches including jesus words in matthew 6 jesus said what he meant and he meant what he said those who do not forgive will be unforgiven but let us ask this question who will forgive when we ask that question light begins to shine where there was darkness in our understanding it is the recipients of mercy who will likewise extend mercy to others those who are unwilling to forgive. May well not be partakers of mercy themselves in contrast those who have received mercy will likewise be merciful scripture is clear that works have no basis in our justification works such as extending forgiveness and mercy to others are the fruit not the root of our salvation let me say that again works are the fruit not the root of our salvation we are not saved by the fruit of salvation. Nothing we do contributes to our justification before God. Forgiving our neighbor is one of the fruits of true faith. A refusal to forgive indicates that there's a definite hardening of the heart taking place. Is someone in that condition therefore unsaved? Well, it could mean that if a person has never first come to faith in Christ, however. If that person is a genuine Christian, it does mean that this sin of unforgiveness needs to be repented of and the attitude changed. As in this case, when we ask the question, who will repent of unforgiveness? The clear answer is that God's elect will. Just as all the elect will at some point come to faith in Christ, John chapter six, verse thirty-seven acts chapter 13 verse 48 all the elect will dispense with unforgiveness and just as god uses means to achieve his ends with the proclamation of the gospel being the means by which the elect believe so god will use the strong warning of matthew 6 in the lives of god's people as a means to that end so who will heed the warning who will forgive Oh that's easy. The elect will. That is not to say that the elect will always walk in love and forgiveness to others all the time. This side of heaven, all the elect, are still fallen sinners with a fallen nature. The war between the flesh and the Spirit will rage on until the day we die. However, just as an elect person might hear the gospel numerous times, before he or she responds in faith to the gospel when they're irresistibly drawn by the Holy Spirit so eventually the same Holy Spirit will so work in the heart of God's children as to cause them to forgive think about this scripture Romans 5 verse 1 therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ the peace we have with God is the fruit of Of our being justified by God this peace is no mere temporary ceasefire the true child of God is not put on probation but is accepted in the beloved adopted into the family of God and sealed for the day of redemption what mercy what mercy we have received child of God if you're struggling to forgive someone think for a moment about how much you have been forgiven doing this will allow you to see that what someone else has done to you pales into insignificance compared with what you have done before God your sins were like scarlet yet he has washed them white as snow think about that ponder that think of the great mercy he has shown you now hear the word of the Lord Ephesians 4 verse 32 be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you here's another question pastor john what would you say to an arminian who says for acts 13 48 that the greek word tasso for ordained or appointed does not have the meaning that we calvinists give by going to Matthew twenty eight sixteen, Luke seven, eight, Romans thirteen one, Acts fifteen two, Acts twenty two, ten, Acts twenty eight, twenty-three, and first Corinthians sixteen fifteen, where the word tasso is translated devoted, he says, Why not translate the Greek word tasso in Acts thirteen forty eight also as devoted? Well, that's quite a question, isn't it? Here's my reply. Well thanks for your question. Acts 13.48 is very clear in speaking of God ordaining or appointing certain people to eternal life and these are the ones who come to faith. The ESV reads, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The NIV reads, All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Clearly, the phrase, as many, or the word all, indicates that everyone who had this appointment made the appointment. There are wide-ranging theological implications to this statement, all of which greatly trouble Arminians who seek to make the belief of individuals the reason or the ground for God ordaining people to eternal life. Arminians believe in conditional election. Election is based on God foreseeing faith in certain individuals. Calvinists, in unconditional uh, election, uh, that belief, they believe faith is not the product of an unregenerate heart, but a divine gift given to those he chooses to save. Acts 13.48 is very clear. God ordains specific individuals to eternal life, and these are the ones who believe. Let me read it again. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I would respond to the Arminian who suggests devoted is a better translation of the text by saying firstly that one should always be highly suspicious of any translation of a Greek word that flies in the face of all the major Bible translations. That's a very good general rule of thumb. To say that a word has been mistranslated so badly by all the leading scholars who have served translation committees in the process of the translation of Bible translations through the centuries, the Bible translations we have in our hands, that defies all credibility. I'm sorry, no. Secondly, there's even uh, one major translation that uses the word devoted Uh, no let me ask this question again secondly here we go is there even one major translation that uses the word devoted in this context can the arminian point to any that does so i don't know of any and there are good reasons for that note the wording of the major translations regarding the text of acts 1348 king james version ordained niv appointed asv ordained ESV appointed, New King James Version appointed, NRSV destined for, NASB appointed, NLT appointed, NET appointed. That speaks for itself. Thirdly, does the Arminian really wish to be saying that those who believed were more devoted than others? Theologically, that would make faith a meritorious action and therefore something in which to boast well that's the end of our time together for this question and answer session i hope it's been a blessing to you let's pray as we end our time together father we thank you for the word of god we thank you for its complexity as well as its unity Thank you, Lord, that you are the one who knows all things and you have revealed yourself without contradiction. That's our starting point for study. If that was not the case, there would be no reason to study. We would just say, as we throw up our hands, that's a contradiction in the Bible. But because you're the God of truth, that means there's no contradiction found in the Scripture because... You're the God of truth, and truth contains no contradiction within it. So, Father, as we search out your word and continue to do that that as disciples of Christ, you'll continue to lead and guide us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth. I pray, Lord, that for everyone hearing this, you'll bless them this day, that you'll cause them to know your voice in the Scripture and to love our Lord Jesus, that we come back to him as the starting point for our questions and answers. He is the truth he is the way the truth and the life may we just exult in his love and his grace thank you for the gospel of our lord jesus christ that god the second person of the trinity became a man in a virgin's womb and then was born and lived a sinless life dying an atoning death on the cross rising again from the dead bodily the third day and is now at the right hand of the throne of god on high and anyone who repents and believes in this lord jesus christ is saved is justified now and forever we thank you for this we thank you in jesus name amen